Death, jail, betrayal are the only certainties. Tonight, police frustration after yet another fatal gang shooting. What parents need to know. Plus... Canucks training camp cancelled over a possible COVID exposure. What we're now learning and... It's just a social thing to get out and uh, socialize. Another BC church fined for defying provincial health orders. Now, what one of their lawyers is saying. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. The Lower Mainland's ongoing gang conflict is looking like an all-out war, and it's claimed another young life. A man in his 20s is dead, gunned down in a Richmond condo suite last night. Police are trying to determine if a drive-by shooting in Coquitlam about an hour later is also connected to a wave of retaliatory attacks among B.C. gangsters. Grace Key has our top story. The latest shooting victim in the Lower Mainland's ongoing gang conflict has been identified as Dilraj Joe Hall. Just before midnight, Richmond RCMP were called to the 8100 block of Lansdowne Road, where they found Joe Hall's body inside a suite, killed by apparent gunfire. Neighbours were shocked to hear it was a targeted killing. Yeah, it's really scary. We thought that Richmond is a safe place to live. But it seems not anymore. And another shooting, this time in Coquitlam in the 1400 block of Kingston Street. About 1 a.m., police found a man with gunshot wounds. Multiple suspects sped away in a car. The victim survived. Police believe the shooting is related to a car fire reported soon after in the 3100 block of Gislison Avenue. A bullet was spotted on the road at that scene. It's unclear if the shooting is related to gang conflict. In the past two weeks, there have been five gang-related fatal shootings in the Lower Mainland. On Thursday, 29-year-old Anis Mohammed was shot at Steveston Park. Wednesday, Gary Kang was shot in a South Surrey family home. On December 27th and 28th, 19-year-old Herman Singh Desi and Tekel Willis, just 14 years old, were also killed, both in Surrey. There is good momentum on each of our cases that we are working and investigating. We will continue to work with our close partners from Richmond RCMP, as well as CFSU BC, and our regional policing partners to share information and help mitigate any further violence. Police say they will be stepping up gang suppression patrols and will continue to work with various agencies in an effort to put an end to the ongoing gang violence. Grace Key, Global News. Former Vancouver Police Gang Squad member Doug Spencer now works with the Odd Squad delivering drug and gang prevention programs to youth. He says kids are a dispensable resource for gangsters and parents need to pay attention. It's just getting worse and worse as the, the kids get more and more desensitized to the dangers of it. And, you know, they think it's all nice cars, pretty girls, lots of money and stuff. They don't understand that that comes with a price. When you get involved in this game, it's deadly. You really got to stay on top of what your kid's up to. Right. If you're the obvious stuff is if your kid's coming home with a sixty thousand dollar SUV and he's not working, time to wake up and smell the roses. Start asking questions. Where'd you get the car or the truck? You know, you got pocketfuls of money. You got all these designer clothes and you're coming home at three or four in the morning. What's going on in your life? 
Only days before the Vancouver Canucks are set to start their abbreviated season, the team abruptly canceled their training camp practices and workouts, citing a potential exposure due to COVID-19. The team played a scrimmage game at Rogers Arena last night ahead of their planned season opener against the Oilers in Edmonton on Wednesday. But now the schedule has to be adjusted because of the word of a possible exposure. The Canucks say today's cancellation was made out of an abundance of caution and provides no other details. Vancouver is the fourth NHL team after the Dallas Stars, Columbus Blue Jackets and the Pittsburgh Penguins to have its training camp affected by the coronavirus. Barry DeLay has more on the altered schedule that's coming up in sports. The Musqueam Indian Band has confirmed its first COVID-19 cases on their reserve. Chief Wayne Sparrow posted a video to the community reminding people to keep following the public health measures. We do have a confirmed household that have tested positive to COVID-19. I want to stress to our band members to be calm Patient, we have an excellent plan put in place. Some frontline workers are expressing concerns about a decision by the province to delay administering second doses of the COVID-19 vaccine. Long-term care workers, nurses and doctors are among the first to receive the Pfizer and Moderna shots with a second dose recommended by the manufacturer after 21 to 28 days. But last month, Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry said BC is delaying the second doses up to 35 days after the first injection. Based on looking at all of the data, the modeling from BC CDC, and discussions of the ethical framework, that we will um, be providing the second dose of both Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine around day 35. So the recommended from the, the company is around day 28. Um, but we, we know we can immunize way more people in the first couple of weeks with their first dose of vaccine and provide that increased protection for people during this very critical time if we just slightly delay when people start getting their second dose. Nurses are very concerned about the safety and efficacy of this vaccine. Uh, they don't want uh, to waste uh, any uh, any protection that this vaccine may have. So they expect that when they received the first dose of vaccine, they knew it would have around 52% effectiveness, but they knew that increased with the second dose being given three weeks later. Uh, and they and they are concerned uh, that we are not following the scientific and um, based evidence provided by the manufacturer. Other jurisdictions, including the UK, are also delaying the second dose in their rollouts. More than a dozen BC churches kept holding in-person gatherings today in ongoing defiance of the public health order meant to stop the spread of COVID-19. And now, as Paul Johnson reports, lawyers hired by the churches are going to court to get more than a dozen fines overturned. Another Sunday of defiance. The faithful arriving for worship service at a Langley church, one of a handful in B.C. that's carried on with in-person services despite the medical health officer's orders not to do so. They've paid a price with the rarely seen in Canada sight of police showing up to give them tickets of $2,300. It's kind of mind-boggling. 
that they're getting a ticket. And also legally questionable, according to an Alberta public interest law firm. They've, they've gone above and even beyond any of the health guidelines that are in place for other places. Marty Moore is a lawyer with the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedom, who are now suing the province in Supreme Court demanding that Victoria explain their reasoning for why religious services have been banned while other activities are allowed to continue. We are uh, asserting charter rights and asking the court to review these orders and see you know, whether these orders strike an appropriate balance between the fundamental freedoms of British Columbia residents and, and the, the health security concerns that are at stake. Moore says of all the provinces, it's B.C. that's come down hardest on the churches not allowing them to try and reopen with the safety protocols they've entrusted other establishments with. So it's NFL Playoff Sunday here in Vancouver's Olympic Village. Number of bars here have several dozen people inside. This is something that really bothers some of these churches who say it hasn't been adequately explained to them how drinking in bars is considered to be a more essential and safer activity than their Sunday ritual. The reality is, is that because they're a religious service, they're directly prohibited from meeting. If they were just a support group or a class, they would be permitted to meet. Global News couldn't reach anyone from the provincial government for comment Sunday. Moore says he expects BC's non-compliant churches will have their day in court soon. Paul Johnson, Global News. A particularly poignant obituary posted online tells of a Vancouver couple married for 49 years who both died of COVID-19 within hours of each other. The family of Stanley Alfred Clifford says he died December 8th at the age of 91 from the virus. His second wife, Leona, died just nine hours later. The longtime Canada Post employee and his wife were survived by three children, seven grandchildren and 14 great-grandchildren. Legislative Bureau Chief Keith Baldry joins us now. Keith, public health officials say we need to act as though we think, as though COVID-19 is everywhere. And mm -hmm. now that the latest data is also confirming that, what does it show? Yeah, they've been saying that since the beginning, but now the data is confirming what they've been warning about, that the virus is literally everywhere. For the longest time, about 90% of the daily cases showed up in two areas, Fraser Health primarily and Vancouver Coastal. Now about 25% of the cases are outside Metro Vancouver. Here's a breakdown of some of the health regions that I'm talking about. It's a pretty lengthy list, so we're not going to mention all of them. But you see, Fraser South continues to have the most cases. This is the first week of the year, and Vancouver the second most. But then you look at some some of the other areas, the Okanagan, the north now has seen a real surge of the virus and the number of hospitalizations. More than 40 people in the sparsely populated north part of the province, uh, they have the highest hospitalization rate. Richmond as well is showing a bit of a spike. The interior has a, a number of cases in the first week as well. Even the Kootenays, which really had very little for so long, is now showing up with some significant numbers, again, on a weekly basis. In Vancouver Island, and of course, we didn't have COVID for the longest time. We now have uh, about 130 cases a week. So it'll be interesting to see whether this trend is reflected again tomorrow. And I think it will be. We're going to get three days worth of numbers from Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix. We've been averaging about 582 cases on a seven-day uh, rolling average going into the weekend. So perhaps we're going to be a little less than 2,000 cases tomorrow, but it's still going to be a big number either way. Colleen? Okay, I'll see you there tomorrow on BC1. Yeah. Thanks, Keith. Supporters of the Delta Hospice Society held a car rally today.
Last week, the Delta Hospice Society said Fraser Health had cancelled its contract to operate the hospice and is appropriating $15 million worth of equipment because the hospice declined to provide medical assistance in dying at one of its facilities. Among the society's supporters is Cecil Hardy, a patient with terminal cancer. This is so unfair and so un-Canadian. I can't believe that the NDP government would not stand behind the facility. I'm so disappointed in the NDP and Adrian Dix and the Fraser Health Service. Fraser Health says it has made repeated efforts to work with the society, but has been unsuccessful. In Campbell River, one person was rushed to hospital after a home caught fire early this morning. The fire department posted video of the house on South Island Highway as the flames engulfed it just after 3.30 this morning. Three people inside managed to escape. One of them was taken to hospital with undetermined injuries. The home has been completely gutted. No word yet on a cause. A tragic end to the search for a missing 16-year-old boy on Vancouver Island. RCMP confirmed search and rescue crews found the body of Andre Courtmanch Saturday evening in Goldstream Provincial Park in Langford. The teen had been missing since New Year's Day. He left his home after an argument with his parents. Searchers, including volunteers from the community, had been combing nearby parks. The cause of death is still under investigation, but RCMP say foul play is not suspected. There have been no reports of any injuries after an avalanche south of Whistler yesterday. The slide came down as backcountry skiers were in the area. These pictures taken by a man in the area of Cowboy Ridge. He says shortly after they spotted search and rescue crews as well as a dog searching for any burials in the snow. RCMP say several skiers were helicoptered out of the area and others managed to ski out themselves. A size three can, uh, you know, bury a, a car, break branches off trees. It's a fairly big avalanche and uh, they're very lucky that uh, they didn't get caught in it. Um, they did get pushed to the side and one person I think had to grab a tree. So the outcome of it was extremely fortunate for them. If they were in the, if they would have been a different place on the slope, it could have been much worse. First responders were called after a man fell through the ice at Alta Lake. The man was cross-country skiing on the lake near Rainbow Park just before 4 o'clock Saturday when the ice gave way. He was able to keep himself buoyant using his skis as he cried for help. First responders carefully made their way towards him using a flotation device. A bystander says it seems he was in the water for almost half an hour before they were finally able to pull him to safety. He was not hurt, but was very, very cold. Next month, British Columbians will support anti-bullying initiatives on Pink Shirt Day. That will be followed by Orange Shirt Day to remember the dark legacy of residential schools. Now, as Kristen Robinson reports, there's a push for B.C. students to wear black once a year for anti-racism. We will have a nonviolent demonstration here in Memphis. Taking the date from the birthday of civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. The greatness of America is the right to protest far right. The Anti-Racism Coalition of Vancouver is proposing January 15th be a day to recognize the ongoing civil rights struggle for black and racialized Canadians. We want um, Black Shirt Day to go national 
um, and eventually international one day. So we thought he was a great figure that everybody could get behind and, and really support. King's assassination nearly 53 years ago sparked massive riots, but also jolted the U.S. to recognize its history of racial injustice, an issue reignited last year around the globe. Building on the success of Pink Shirt Day's anti-bullying campaign. Time for me to release some of that anger. And Orange Shirt Day in solidarity with Indigenous victims of Canada's residential school system. Proponents say Black Shirt Day would help fight all forms of racism and hate. The most important thing is it's a day for mandatory curriculum on black history, which we don't currently have in B.C. Although we have pioneers like sprinter Harry Jerome, who could enrich BC classrooms. Jerome set seven world records in sport, outrunning racism and a career-threatening injury to win a bronze medal in the 100 meter at the 1964 Tokyo Olympics. I've seen the promised land. Thousands have signed a Black Shirt Day petition. Although not official yet, it's already on the calendar at schools in Burnaby and Richmond as the Ministry of Education reviews how it can bolster provincial curriculum to include new teachings, perspectives and history. Kristen Robinson, Global News. The North Cowichan mayor is so upset over inappropriate comments against local First Nations, he posted a rant on the matter. The Cowichan tribe's community has been ordered to shelter in place until January 22nd due to rising COVID cases in their community. Mayor Al Sebring writes in part, this whole thing has prompted some very inappropriate responses from the broader community, including demands that off-reserve employers fire any First Nations workers who may come into contact with the broader community purely basis on the basis of their membership in Cowichan tribes. That, folks, is racism, plain and simple, and it's wrong. He adds, this virus is no respecter of persons or of race. It does not discriminate, and neither should we. An update on the story we first brought you last night. We're now hearing from a Vancouver man who says he's been the victim two times of hate attacks in less than a year. Eddie Elmer says he no longer feels safe in the city after the latest attack early Saturday near Burrard and Georgia Streets. In a social media post, Elmer says that he was waiting to cross the intersection when a man yelled anti-Semitic comments, struck him hard in the leg and then tried to punch him in the head. He called 911 as the attacker fled. Vancouver police say the suspect was arrested on an outstanding warrant. Their hate crime section is reviewing the file. I suspect that a lot of these incidents are are happening um, by people who have mental health and drug addiction problems. And I mean, it's really difficult to reason with them when they're in that state. Um, My message is more for the general public. When you see somebody uh, in distress, when you see somebody being harassed or followed or if they look like they need help, um, try to intervene somehow, and it doesn't mean that you have to you know, approach anyone, but you know, just calling police and saying what you see. A Montreal family that was on their way back from New Brunswick says they were unfairly given over $3,000 in tickets on the first night of Quebec's COVID-19 curfew. As Dan Spector reports, with Quebecers no longer allowed to be outside between 8 p.m. and 5 a.m., there are few exceptions. 
Right, and $3,100 is not peanuts when you have three children. Melissa Calhoun of Montreal's West Island is furious that she and her husband were among the first Quebecers to be ticketed for breaking the province's curfew. They were driving back from caring for her father in New Brunswick. He was in the hospital for a bit and um, he lives alone, so he didn't have anyone to take care of him. The plan was to come back January 2nd, but their car broke down. We were not able to come back. We were waiting for a part from Germany. While they were there, Quebec announced the curfew. New Brunswick announced stricter restrictions. Their children were starting school on Monday. Finally, they chose to rent a car and leave theirs behind and thought they'd make it home before 8. I have three kids, so you can account for time. There are kids that are going to cry and scream and their legs hurt and they need to use the bathroom and... Uh, they're hungry and I have to do diaper changes, things like that. They were stopped by provincial police about 30 kilometers from home, two hours past curfew. Basically, they said it appears as though you're in a gray zone, which means you probably shouldn't be getting the ticket. But because you're past curfew, we have no choice but to give you the ticket. Civil rights lawyer Julius Gray thinks the couple has a strong case to contest their $1,500 tickets. They're, they're supposed to be uh, understanding and they're supposed to go easy. Then I would think that the, the, in a case like that, they should have abstained from ticketing. But he's not as sure about the dozens of protesters who purposely broke the rules Saturday night. Provincial police said they issued more than 150 tickets. Quebec City police said they gave 20 fines. A dozen were fined in Sherbrooke, and in Montreal, 17 were fined at a protest against the curfew. But I will contest it. Protesters in Montreal argued the curfew is a violation of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Whoever represented them would not have to... Uh, leave the court shamefaced for having brought up an, uh, an unarguable argument, but uh, they would ultimately lose uh, because uh, this is an emergency. Calhoun is hoping that once she explains her situation in court, the couple's fines will be reversed. I can only assume that the government is going to be fair. Dan Spector, Global News, Montreal. Search crews off Indonesia's, Indonesia's coast have located the black boxes from passenger jet that crashed into the Java Sea this weekend. Officials detected pings from the flight data recorder and the cockpit voice recorder within 200 meters of the crash site. Efforts are underway to recover them from the sea floor. Parts of the engine from the Boeing 737-500 series jet have been pulled from the water, along with pieces of the fuselage, other debris and human remains. Fifty passengers, including ten, including ten children and 12 crew members, were on board when the plane went down shortly after taking off from Indonesia's capital, Jakarta. The cause of the crash is still under investigation. The chorus of calls for President Donald Trump to resign or be removed from office is growing louder, even among those in his own party. An article of impeachment is expected to be introduced in the House early this week. The president remains silent after the riot at the Capitol, and social media companies are now cracking down on extremist rhetoric. Jennifer Johnson has more. A procession carrying the body of Officer Brian Sicknick drove by the U.S. Capitol. Federal and local police officers paying respects to the man who lost his life defending the Capitol last week. Flags have been lowered to half-staff. The White House lowered its flag Sunday afternoon. More than 200 House members and over 37 senators are now calling on President Trump to resign or be removed from office, including some Republicans. The best way for our country, Chuck, is for the president to resign and go away as soon as possible. 
House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says an article of impeachment charging the president with incitement of insurrection will be introduced early this week. But some lawmakers want to delay a possible Senate trial. Let's give uh, President-elect Biden uh, the 100 days he needs to get his agenda off uh, and running. Many lawmakers are fearful of what Trump loyalists may do next. The number of death threats that have been thrown out against people like me and, frankly, every member of Congress. Vice President Pence, one of the most faithful guys to Donald Trump, is now public enemy number one. The president has reportedly not called Pence since the siege. Twitter has silenced the president. Apple, Google and Amazon have now cracked down on Parler, a conservative social media app. Washington remains under a state of emergency. The mayor has asked Homeland Security for additional protection starting Monday. As the National Guard erects what it says is a non-scalable fence around the Capitol ahead of Inauguration Day. Jennifer Johnson, NBC News, Washington. A woman who falsely accused a black teenager of stealing her phone and tackled him at a New York City hotel has been escorted by police back to New York City. Police say Mia Ponsetto faces charges of attempted robbery, grand larceny, two counts of attempted assault and endangering the welfare of a child. She was arrested Thursday outside Los Angeles after days of intense media coverage. The teen falsely accused in the incident is the son of acclaimed jazz musician Keon Harold. During an interview with CBS News, Ponsetto apologized and said she considers herself to be, quote, super sweet. Her attorney says Ponsetto is, quote, emotionally unwell and remorseful. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. The Spanish government is sending convoys carrying the COVID-19 vaccine and food supplies to areas cut off by the heaviest snowfall seen there in decades. The citizens and civil servants have joined forces to help clear access to hospitals and other access points. At least four people were killed during the snowstorm, dubbed Philomena. More than 1,500 others were trapped in their cars near Madrid. Forecasters warn of dangerous conditions in the coming days, with temperatures expected below minus 10. Madrid recorded 50 centimeters of snow overnight between Friday and Saturday, jamming roads, rail lines and air travel. But it's not all bad. This T-Rex was spotted rolling around through the snow, making uh, snow angels. There you go, which can be difficult when your arms are shorter than your legs. Uh, Rexy the dinosaur got plenty of laughs as he or she tried to wade through the knee-high snow piled up on the streets of Madrid. So cute. And a snow story from Italy that may make you dizzy. We're going to have that for you right after Yvonne's forecast. I love those dinosaur costumes. The best. By the, way. the best. So cute. And to make a snow angel very challenging. Very challenging. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Colleen, uh, we managed to see a few breaks out there. We are tracking some wet weather, and we've been advertising and chatting lots about storm after storm. So we'll have the timeline. We are going to see very windy conditions, and we are tracking some snow if you're traveling along the mountain passes. Here's a quick glance at what we are seeing right now. So just on our doorstep, we've got that next wave of rain that is going to push in. It'll intensify across Metro Vancouver, and some of the heaviest rainfall will be overnight and into the early morning hours on our Monday. Now, here's the system as we zoom on out, and we've got all the warnings in the following areas in red, that's the wind warning that are in effect. Now, the north coast, high to Gwaii included, could be up to 90 kilometers per hour. The northern tip of Vancouver Island included within that. The western side of the island, 16 up to 90. And most areas across Metro Vancouver, 
We are going to see the winds range between 30 and potentially up to 60 kilometers per hour, and that takes us through the day on our Monday. Now, we are looking at uh, the precipitation intensifying, especially overnight, leading in towards the morning hours. But there is a bit of a break in the action and between systems, and that looks to kick in by the afternoon. So a heads up, similar to what we're seeing today, some breaks in there with just a chance of showers. We'll still hang on to a fair bit of cloud cover, and then the next round of rain is going to push in heavy at times for all areas along the south coast. If you're you're heading along, along the mountain passes, though. I've included amounts tonight and then through tomorrow night just to give that range. And do check in with drivebc.ca for the latest road conditions. But the Coquihalla could see 15 and up to 20 centimeters. Kootenay Pass up to 15. The Connector and Allison Pass between 5 to 10. Most areas along the Sea to Sky, it's flurries this evening and it should change over to showers by tomorrow. Rainfall amounts, we'll see them upwards of 20 millimeters for most areas. How Sound will still see a significant amount and the central half of of the island for areas near Port Alberni. The rain is going to taper off along the north coast tomorrow, but we're still seeing very windy conditions with those wind warnings that are in effect. Much of the central interior will see a few isolated flurries or showers, especially for the early morning hours. And if you're traveling in the southern interior, tomorrow it's flurries and then it intensifies higher elevations and along the mountain passes will actually see a significant amount of snow once again Monday and leading in towards Tuesday. Whistler will see that change over to rain and it is wet and windy along the south coast, but the silver lining for tomorrow as we'll actually see a few breaks in the cloud cover. The next round of rain will be heavy at times, also seeing very mild temperatures up to 11 degrees, and then on Wednesday, breaking between systems. Colleen? Long as Tuesday or Wednesday have a little sunshine, I'm yes, happy. All right. <laughs> Thanks so much, Yvonne. We're often warned that shoveling snow can kill you, but that's usually referring to heart attacks, not falling to your death, which is what could happen here. After heavy snow blanketed the mountains of northeast Italy, Specialist firefighters had to clear the snow from the roofs. The firefighters are part of a specially trained unit that climb into caves and perform other risky missions. On this mission, they secured themselves by ropes using ladders to reach the peak of a high church roof. The firefighters brigade was dispatched to carry out more than 200 snow-related operations after a storm hit the area this week. Not a chance. A lot of snow up there. (sighs) Yeah, you're hoping that if you do fall, the snow would break your fall, but there (laughs) isn't that much snow. It does look like it's a soft landing. (laughs) I would hope so. Barry, what do you got coming up? Well, of course, the big news is uh, Canucks with uh, having to shut down practice today because of uh, a COVID situation. We have a lot of questions, not a lot of answers. We don't know who it is. They don't name uh, name names anyway, but we don't know if it's a player, a coach, some of their equipment managers. We are not going to know. But the good news is they will have practice tomorrow. So that tells me it's not a a humongous outbreak or or as serious as as it could be. So... Who knows? There's a lot of questions, like we said. We won't hear from the Canucks until tomorrow about 12.30. So okay. until then, we're just going to speculate. A yearbook is one of the most important reminders of our time in high school. This year, yearbook committees across the province have had to adjust because of pandemic restrictions. None of the usual school hallmark events, such as club meetings, dances, or team sports, will be included this year. But Sarah McDonald reports that that isn't stopping a Port Moody committee from immortalizing their unforgettable year in a pandemic. 
That looks great. No matter what year you graduated, you likely have one of these kicking around. The hardest part of working on a yearbook during a pandemic is getting fun and fresh content. The high school yearbook is a time-honored tradition. But how do you fill the pages during a pandemic when most clubs, committees and sports teams are either canceled or look drastically different due to COVID-19? Add to that your subjects' faces covered by masks. People, when they want to express something, they express it with like smiling or like joy. So sometimes we can only see stuff through like people with their eyes. The best that I can do is try and make people laugh, smile with their eyes. That's just one of the ways the yearbook committee at Heritage Woods Secondary School in Port Moody has had to get creative this school year under the leadership of Lorenda Gilder. Our theme is uh, superheroes. And the reason why we came up with that is that everybody's wearing a mask and, and, you know, what we thought of is like strange 1950s science fiction. One of the biggest challenges, a gaping void of those traditional group photos that would have been snapped without a second thought before the days of physical distancing. Team photos and class photos this year take a lot of extra work. Our group shots, for example, we can't get people like together when we take photos. They have to be separated. Everyone has to wear masks. That's also another big thing. That means portraits like this are now literally a work of art. Each person here was actually photographed by themselves and then cut and paste into the final product by hardworking students like Ahmed Mohammed Kamal. It gives me a sense of giving back to the school because like every year people, especially the grads, they're excited. So in 10 or 20 years, they get to relive their high school years. Make sure that you stick a photo in there that's like really, really phenomenal. Including one year in particular, which no doubt will be hard to forget, with a hardcover handy just in case any grads and students need a reminder. Sarah McDonald, Global News. Don't miss three days of the best short films BC has to offer. The 11th annual Vancouver Short Film Festival is launching online from January 22nd to 24th, celebrating the vibrant community of short film, video, and animation from documentary action to sci-fi. Do you know someone who has overcome adversity? Consider nominating them for the 23rd Courage to Come Back Awards, which pay tribute to those who have overcome overwhelming challenges and given back to the community. Nominate today. For RBC, I'm Michael Newman. If you wanna know, it's on the house. If you wanna show, it's on the house. If you wanna go, it's on the Global BC Community Hub. Navigate your now. Barry's here with sports, and Barry, I think a lot of us have our fingers crossed that the, the Canucks can just stay healthy for mm-hmm. a while. Is it me, or is this COVID thing affecting a lot of stuff, <laughs> you know, in the last it's 10 It's not months. you. So it seems, seems to be happening. <laughs> Thanks, Colleen. Yeah, the Canuck training camp uh, has come to an abrupt halt because of COVID. The team canceled today's scheduled practices and media availability at around 1040 this morning. They are not releasing any details other than saying all activities have been suspended out of an abundance of caution due to potential exposure to COVID-19. We don't know if it's a player, a coach, a training staff member, or how many have tested positive, but the team says they will hold practice tomorrow morning at 11, followed by media availability. So that would appear to be a good sign. The Canucks are obviously following league safety protocols to minimize the damage, but it could potentially affect them starting their season on time. They're scheduled to open this coming Wednesday in Edmonton against the Oilers. Now, last night, the Canucks had their second and final scrimmage at Rogers before the uh, 
COVID things uh, blew up. This game had some bite to it. Autumn Goddett and Tyler Mott get tangled up. Maybe a slew foot there from Mott that Goddett did not like. And two veteran teammates going at it. So I suppose that's a good sign as long as no one gets hurt. Goes to the shootout. Elias Pettersson on Thatcher Demko. And it's good to know Pedersen still has the touch. Look at that, posting in for the win. Uh, as mentioned, no practice today. We will hear from them, though, tomorrow afternoon. Chase Claypool has had an incredible rookie season with the Pittsburgh Sealers, uh, setting rookie records for catches and touchdowns. Tonight, Claypool got a taste of his first NFL playoff game as the Steelers hosted the Cleveland Browns, a team that has lost its last 17 visits to Pittsburgh. Browns' first playoff game since 2002 when they lost to the Steelers. But on the very first play of the game, the Steelers gift a touchdown to the Browns. Shotgun snap over Ben Roethlisberger's head. Carl Joseph recovers in the end zone. The Browns jump out 7-0, and it set the tone for a bizarre series of events in that first quarter. After Roethlisberger threw an interception on the Steelers' next possession, Baker Mayfield to Jarvis Landry. It's a 40-yard pass and run for the touchdown, and the Browns are shocking the Steelers 14 to nothing, and we're just five minutes into the first quarter. And they weren't done yet, not by a long shot. Cleveland just running the ball down the Steelers' throats. Kareem Hunt with uh, some help from his friends, bulls his way in for the third touchdown of the quarter. It's 21-0, and they're still not done. After another interception, Kareem Hunt does it again, another TD run. The 28 points by Cleveland in the first quarter is an NFL record for a playoff game. Unbelievable. It's 28-7 late in the first half. Earlier, Ryan Tannehill and the Titans hosting Baltimore. Titans beat the Ravens in last year's playoffs. Strong opening quarter for Tennessee. Tannehill into the corner for A.J. Brown, who may or may not have got away with a push-off, but it's a touchdown for the Titans. They led 10-0. But Lamar Jackson got his legs going in the second, and that was bad news for the Titans. Jackson finds some room and just takes off. Look at him go. Gallops towards the end zone, then dives for the cone. Just gets the football inside the pylon. A scintillating 48-yard touchdown run. It was 10-10 at halftime. Ravens ran the, ran the ball down the Titans' throats. J.K. Dobbins from four yards out takes it in for the TD. Ravens led 17-10. They rushed for 236 yards, but it was Baltimore's defense that held rushing champ Derrick Henry to just 40 yards. Tannehill forced to put the ball up more than he wanted. He's picked off by Marcus Peters with under two minutes to go. But the Titans still had their timeouts left, all three of them. So if they could get a stop, they'd get another chance. But Lamar Jackson wouldn't let it happen. Seals the deal with this 33-yard run. The Ravens get their revenge as Jackson ran for over 135 yards as the Ravens win it 20-13, Jackson's first-ever playoff win. In the NFC, Bears and Saints from New Orleans, first quarter. It will be Drew Brees to Michael Thomas, and he finds his way in for the touchdown, 11-yard strike, 7-0 for the Saints. Many say Brees is going to retire after this, so... He, of course, would love to go out a champ. Bears looking to respond. Some trickery here. Mitchell Trubisky going deep. Javon Wims wide open in the end zone, but he drops it. He's playing whiffed on it. What a key play that was. Chicago uh, costing seven points there. Third quarter, still a tight game at 7-3, but the Saints stretch the lead. Breeze will dump it off to Alvin Kamara. 
who uh, works his way in for the touchdown. He missed last week because he was positive for COVID. Had six touchdowns on Christmas Day in his last game. He got two more today, including that run. And the Saints win it 21-9. So that sets up next week's divisional playoffs in the NFC. And we have the matchups and the times. It will be the Rams and Packers Saturday at 135. And then the Bucks and Saints, Brady versus Breeze, the 40-something future Hall of Famers going head-to-head. That goes Sunday at 340. NBA tonight, Raptors and Warriors, both teams with significant changes since they met in the finals in 2019, but still a lot of star power. Canadian Chris Boucher having a great start to the year, an expanded roll-off the bench and he's producing great basket here draws the foul Boucher had 10 at that point Raps though getting killed on the offensive glass they have a bit of a lack of size forced to go with a lot of smaller lineups and they pay the price Golden State 61-51 at the half Final round of the Century Tournament of Champions from Maui. Young Chilean Joaquin Neiman made a big run today. Went low on a very windy day. A great approach here at 16. Takes it way past the pin into the rough, but he had so much spin on it. Brings it back to just a couple of feet. Would make birdie his ninth birdie of the round. He shot a 9-under 64. It's a par 73, so he posts 25-under. But Harris English on 18 needs a birdie to force a playoff and eagle to win. Second shot from 250. How about this? Flushes it and gets it to within... Eight feet for the eagle, but he would miss that putt. Had to have a birdie, uh, settled for a birdie. So that means a playoff with Joaquin Neiman. And on the first playoff hole, English with a five-footer for the win, and he knocks it in. So he takes the Century Tournament of Champions, just his third PGA Tour win. Abbotsford's Nick Taylor tied 29th at 13 under. Mackenzie Hughes tied 41st at minus four. Got some World Cup bobsleigh from Germany. First start of the season for Justin Cripps and his Summerland crew. His four-man sled delivering its first podium of the abbreviated season. White Rock's Ryan Summer, part of his crew. Canadian sleds uh, and winter athletes sitting out the first half of the sliding season at Silver today. They're in San Moritz, Switzerland next week. FA Cup third round, eighth-tier Marine football club taking on premiership giant Tottenham at a park literally in the middle of a residential neighborhood. Fans weren't allowed in the park due to COVID. Marine was very thankful that Spurs brought and played many of their top players like Gareth Bale and Deli Ali. Spurs got a hat trick from Carlos Vinicius and won easily 5-0, but Marine raised over 300,000 pounds on virtual ticket sales. Spurs left them a box of shirts and have promised to send them their game-worn shirts once washed, so that's the beauty of the FA Cup. Semi-pro teams on the same pitch as the Premiership Millionaires, and in this case, Tottenham won easily, but the result wasn't the biggest deal today. We showed you the massive dump of snow central Spain is trying to cope with. Well, some are making the most of it. 
In Madrid, a massive snowball fight erupted on Saturday after the unprecedented blizzard hit the Spanish capital and large parts of the, the country. They were captured throwing snowballs at each other in city squares, as well as using street furniture, including garbage cans, during the fight. Police later had to drive vehicles between the groups to try to break them up. Okay, have a look at this. A Calgary family created their own ski hill and tube park in their backyard. The family lives on an acreage just outside city limits. They built a tow rope for the kids and adults, allowing them to be pulled up the hill on skis or on toboggans. All you need is an ice rink, and I am in heaven. That looks putting like lots, a dream. Yeah, putting lots of pressure on all the dads out there to... <laughs> crank up their backyards, but that's pretty Big cool. time, big time, yeah. <laughs> Maintenance would probably yes. be a, a bit of a chore. Uh, one last look at our weather forecast. It's going to be rain along the south coast with very windy conditions, so a heads up. A heaviest rain overnight and for tomorrow morning. We'll actually see some breaks in between systems tomorrow. The next round of rain is going to move in Monday night and then leading in towards Tuesday and a heads up for the mountain passes. Also looking at some snowfall too. Call okay, me. thanks so much. That is the news hour for tonight. Thanks for joining us. Jordan is here at 11 o'clock. Stay with us now for 60 Minutes and that candid interview with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Good night.